uh, Galatians 5, uh, verse 23, 24. We're moving on. You can see that there are just 26 verses in this chapter. We're going to do 23 at the end. We're going to do 24 today. And one more one more message to follow on the internal battlefield. The verse, I'm going to start reading in verse 22 and finish with verse 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Heavenly Father, we have your text open up in front of us today as very powerful words for us to see and quite a call for us to do. I pray that our hearts are ready, even now as we begin our study of this section, that it's ready to respond to your precious, your perfect, your pure, your wonderful word. Lord, you know every single room or person in this room. You know our hearts this morning. You know where we stand with you. And I pray that the next uh, few minutes we spend in your word might be that which warms the heart, challenges our souls, brings us to a commitment and bends our will to the things of yours. Do your work in our midst. Do your work in our lives. And we look forward to finding another cause to give you thanks today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the application section. Verse 24, 25, even down to verse number 26. The application section of the study we have been in starting in verse number 15 and working our way all the way through, describing a battlefield within us, a spiritual conflict that takes place within every, every single believer. As we reach this place of application, the words that I find in a dictionary, the action of putting something into operation. The action of putting something into operation. Now, I teach classes and I have students and I always tell them as we come up on midterm exams or final exams uh, exactly what they can expect on their exam. I tell them that. I tell them what to study. I tell them what it will look like. I tell them all those things. Uh, they just don't know the order it's coming in. I just tell them what to expect. Why? It's not to make their life any easier. Actually, I think it makes it even more challenging uh, to know exactly what the material is because that's what you're being tested on, whether or not you have prepared what you've been taught. And that's what I aim to, to look for is, is what do you do with what you've been told? What do you do with it? That's what application is all about here. And no, I don't have a final exam for you uh, for Galatians chapter 5. Though that would be a lot of fun, I think. Um, I do not have a final exam because this is my little theory to this. The rest of your life is the final exam to this passage. 
what you do with this study is vital. That's what the application is all about today, putting it into operation, what you have heard. And maybe you've been doing this all along. I've been appealing to that point all the way along. What are you doing with this material? We're not here just to fill our heads, are we? We're not here to, to be able to win some trivia challenge contest if it comes to biblical truth. We want to be able to live this out. And really, when it comes down to it, if there was an exam written up for this, there would be only one question. And it pertains to the one thing we are told to do. And what is that? Walk by the Spirit. And the question would be, yes or no? Am I walking by the Spirit? That's the question on the exam. Am I walking by the Spirit? Only you can answer that for yourself. But that's what verse 16 has told us. The one statement that we've been called to do is walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, just so you know, that's the theme. Jump down to verse 25. <coughs> if we live by the Spirit, let us also do what? Walk by the Spirit. That's the application to the command. The command is walk by the Spirit. The application is walk by the Spirit. The only thing we've been called to do here, I, I reiterate that, I know, often, because I've been telling you for the last several weeks in our study of the fruit of the Spirit, these are things you do not do. These are the things the Holy Spirit does in you. It is His fruit, right? It is what He produces in you. You are told to walk by the Spirit. He produces the fruit. That's the evidence, if you will, that you are indeed walking His way. That's what the context has has shown us. And honestly, the fruit is a great indicator of whether or not the Holy Spirit has dominance in your life. If you struggle with the fruit passage and you say, well, I don't, I don't see these kind of things in my life. I, I really struggle with these kind of things in my life. I, they're just not there. The question you should need to ask is, am I then walking with the Spirit like I'm called to? That's the big question. So, we're approaching the application today, and you say, Pastor, you just gave it. Okay, but I still have 35 minutes. I've got more to say and convince you of as we go through this, especially as we look for the rationale for it all. Verse 23 at the end, verse 24. We're going to see both the reason for the application, and we're going to see the foundation for the application here in these two sections Start with the reason, and the reason is real simple. The battle is severe. I, I've been trying to present this in a battle motif all the way through because this is not some little game. This is not some optional uh, attachment to the Christian life. This battle is severe, and it does take place. It says here a very interesting phrase, and against such things, there is no law. Does that strike you as kind of a funny way to end a list like that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
I think that's a kind of interesting little phrase. It was about five years ago when I came here, I heard the story several, several times about the fact there is no law in Hillsdale. And you guys laugh because you know the story too. There is no law in Hillsdale. That's what I keep hearing. Now, this sounds a little odd to say, against such there is no law. And, and really, commentators tend to scratch their head a little bit and try to figure this out. And I don't know if I have enough information to give you all the answers to it still. But let me tell you what I, I've studied and what I've worked on. It seems easy enough to say that, well, there's no law against peace. <laughs> there's no law against love. There's no law against joy. There's no law against patience. And throw the fruit out there and add the phrase, there's no law against working that out in your life. And you may say, well, then there's no rules. There's no principles against it. Well, that's not, that sounds easy to say, but... Um, there are laws. We do operate by law. And I'm setting you outside of Hillsdale for a minute, all right? I'm setting you outside of, of American law code and such like that, which we have social laws and, and things of that nature in our day and age. But consider the laws that the believer operates under. Some people say, but we're not under law, are we? Well, Go back to Romans chapter 8 for a minute. Go back to Romans 8 and look at verse number 1 with me, just for starters. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Excellent verse. I love that verse, don't you? Does it say there's no law or no condemnation? Condemnation is the result of breaking the law. It says there is no condemnation. The condemnation of dis disobedience. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. But if you backed up into chapter 7, Paul has been saying practically that entire chapter that he's under all kinds of laws. He could talk about the law of the Word of God, and that does hold him conscious, and it holds him accountable, and he knows it very well. He knew that law inside and out. And he spoke much about the law, primarily the Old Testament law code, and he would be very quick to say, we've been released from that law because Jesus Christ paid the penalty that we deserved by breaking that law says, we've been released from the condemnation of that law. says, we're free from that law. And here's say that here, here's say that in Galatians, here's say that in many places, because it's very true. Now, that does not mean that the law is bad, because he does say in Romans chapter 7 that the law is good, and the law is holy, and the law is righteous, and you know, it will always be so. Always be so. God's word is pure. His law is excellent and always will be so. But we who have broken such law have a remedy in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. That's where he started with chapter 8. But he goes on and Paul adds to these things based on what he concludes in chapter 7 verse 23. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war 
against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin. Are you starting to count them? A law here, a law there. A law here, a law there. He starts to show you there are laws working. The principle to do evil. A law of sin. A law of his mind. An intense conflict between the law of sin, which the flesh excites, and the law of the mind that wants to do good. Such a law we are accustomed to as well, aren't we? We know this law. Matter of fact, it's probably popped its head up quite a bit during the midst of our study of the Galatians 5 passage. We know what we are to be doing. We know what we are not doing. We know what we... We know these things. We're sensing that condemnation at times. That at the end of verse number... 24, Paul says in chapter 7, Wretched man that I am. He's surrounded by these laws. And you say, okay, what's that got to do with this? Chapter 8, there's now no condemnation. Woo, we're free. But look at verse 2. What's the first law? The law of who? The Spirit? Is there a law that we operate under according to the Spirit? The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The law of the Spirit. This is precisely why we did Galatians 5, and when we pick up after the holidays, we're doing Romans 8. These passages teach us so much that I can't communicate right now, but in our study, we are not free, as Galatians has taught us, we're not free to do whatever we want. We are under law. We're under a great host of laws in that way. In Galatians chapter 5, where we are today, in verse 23, we saw this phrase, and against such things there is no law. You say, well, what's that a reference to then? The condemnation? The condemnation that uh, uh, walking by the Spirit were not under law? Do you know what the counterpart is to it? Back up just a little bit in Galatians 5 to verse 21. After he mentioned the deeds of the flesh, and the ending there in 21, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, does he not go on to say a condemnation? I forewarn you, as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that sound like does that sound like a condemnation to you? It certainly does. Now he talks about the fruit of the spirit, and all of a sudden he says, "And there's no law." It might be related to condemnation, as one commentator said. Against such virtues, using that word for the fruit of the spirit, there is no law to condemn us. The law cannot bring a charge against those who practice such things, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, of course. Now, you may be saying right now, so what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I mean, this this doesn't sound like it has a great deal of application. Let me put it this way. Since the flesh is in in opposition to the Spirit, and I've stressed that because the text does, 
The flesh is in opposition to the Spirit. The flesh is in opposition to the things of the Spirit. And since you and I live in a world that operates by the flesh, do you know that? This world is in opposition to the things of the Spirit. It is. This world does not like the things of the Spirit. The world does not like or want the things of the Spirit. The principles of the Spirit... They do not want to dominate their domain. They do not want these things that we've been studying here. The world will resist with every fiber of its being the godly principle set out in Scripture. You say, well, it's not so bad. Every week, do you not feel morals eroding in this country? Do you not sense the opposition getting stronger and bolder each and every day to get what they want? The pressure is mounting against the Christian viewpoint. It's just reality, folks. And you say, well, that's, that's, maybe it's temporary. <laughs> not what Scripture teaches. It says that the day will come when the world will think it's a good thing to get rid of the believer. And all the believer stands for. Jesus himself said it. In Matthew, I mean John chapter 16, verse 2. He says, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But the hour is coming when everyone who kills you thinks that he is offering service to God. Now, that just encouraged you to pieces, didn't it? I just say what's simply black and white, as the Scripture portrays it. It's just true. And this list we've studied for many, many weeks, but it's being turned against us in so many different ways. Because the flesh in its dominance actually stated its favor for immorality, impurity, Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dispute, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing. Romans 1 ends with the fact that they actually stand up and applaud those who do so. They applaud it. And the things that we have studied, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, are things that this world condemns. It's condemned by the fleshly crowd. Believer, we haven't crossed the finish line yet. We're not at the end of this whole thing. In the midst of the battle, you see, there's a fog that sets in. And it confuses us. This world, it's society, it confuses us, doesn't it? We hear voices from all these places. The opposition just spouts its propaganda through the loudspeakers. We hear it. We hear it. We hear it so frequently that how often do we start to believe it? We start to repeat it. We start to live it. We start to do it because we're comfortable settling into a world like this. We start to march by its drum. This whole passage is saying, God's word will not change. 
this battle line may be drawn by the world in one place or another place or another place, but God says, this is where it stays. I have nothing against, no law against, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God commends the way of the Spirit. While the world is going to shout for you to stop it, God commends it. Regardless of what this world thinks, God says you are free to live the laws of the Spirit. You are free to walk by the Spirit. You are free to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. You are free to do so. And if this is resonating in your heart right now, Just be reminded of this simple fact that I think only believers can understand. When the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. This passage even says that. You're free to live that Christian life. Even in opposition. Even on the battlefield. You're free to live it out. I'm hoping I've expressed this correctly to you this morning. Because I I don't want to stomp through the waters and make them all muddy. I just want to convey to you that the conflict is so strong, not only within us, but the world's added its own pressure against us. And the voice of the flesh is always in opposition to the things of the Spirit. And we should be never surprised when the world calls what is bad good and what is good bad. It should never surprise us that they even will do their best to set rules against the fruit of the Spirit. God declared this list and said, against such there is no law. Now, I think that's a good reason for the application. The reason, because the conflict is severe, because there's a necessity for us to live out this truth, let's dig real deep into verse 24. I think this uh, is a very practical way to understand our need to walk by the Spirit. Here's our foundation. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When I read that, two words popped up on the page so big in that phrase. The first one that caught my attention was the word crucified. Crucified. That word is chosen intentionally. Could have used a lot of different words, but what a powerful word that one was. Crucified. We know something about crucifixion because of the study of Jesus Christ. We have it given to his scripture of his crucifixion. And we've heard that there is no type of death so heinous, so torturous as crucifixion. You're aware that there is one goal for crucifixion. What is that? Death. That's what it's for. We see it illustrated in the Savior's death. A body attached to a cross, a tree, by rope or by nail. We know what they used in Christ's death. They nailed him to the cross. Hung up to die. 
Some victims could last several days in that state. But eventually fatigue, especially the fatigue of the legs, gives way. And they die in suffocation. As if our Savior's death, we also know there was an enormous amount of loss of blood. After all, he had been tortured the night before. They scourged him, didn't they? They tore open his back with a whip. He had no sleep. And then add the anguish of the jeering and the thirst, and add the crushing weight, if we could say it in such a simple way, the crushing weight of the sins of the world. It was an incredible, incredible crucifixion. But it had one purpose, and that was death. Look at verse 24. What died? The flesh. Say, really? Well, what does it say? Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Crucified the flesh. Crucified? Crucified. Do you have that in the past tense? Is that what that looks like to you? If it is, you're right. We call that the aorist tense in the Greek. Finish. It doesn't say was crucifying. And unfortunately, I've read that quite often in my study. Is that they say, well, the death is, is still being crucified. It's still hanging up there. It's still, you know, wiggling around. And it's like, no, it's past tense. Was crucified. Crucified. Pastor. You say, okay, well, what's that mean? The flesh has been killed. Right? Now, I know what you're thinking. Hang in there. The flesh has been killed. The flesh has been impaled on a cross. The flesh has been extinguished in power. Dead. That was the goal. That's what happened. One, one definition is destroyed its power utterly. You say, but how can that be? <laughs> you know, that thing was haunting me this morning. I thought you said it was dead, Pastor. And Boy, you know what? It was looking right at me. Well, let's talk about this for a minute. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Here's another one we've got to do someday. Romans 6. Wow, what a passage this is. This one would change your life, folks, if we just walk through it verse by verse. What are you doing for the next 20 years? It'd take us that long just to redo all of Romans, I think. But here in chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. What shall I say to this? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who, what? Died to sin still live in it? There's our question. Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Oh, that word, don't let it throw you. Baptism, it, it means to immerse yourself into something. Right? We use it for water baptism. You immerse them in water. But the concept is, and maybe we should use the word, how about this? Or do you not know that all of us, or all of us, who have been immersed into Christ Jesus, have been immersed into his death? Does that sound like you just kind of have a toe in it? No. 
You are completely inundated with these things. You have been, verse 4 says, we have been buried with Him through immersion into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, here it comes, ready? Our old self was what? Crucified with Him. Is that true? God said it. It is true. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. You say, well, what's the problem then? Well, here's the point. All of these principles that we just saw were in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. We've been crucified our body of sin, our old self crucified with Him. Our life is with Him. We are raised up with Him. Without Christ, we're nothing. But the emphasis is on what Christ has done. And our, our place in that, our position in that, because we believe in Him. So the first question, if you say, well, I still struggle with that old man, I, don't, I, I can't get him away. Let me ask you this, are you in Christ? That's number one. Because if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, yes, you still have that flesh haunting you. (laughs) It's still there. It's still alive very much. Because it's not been crucified. That's one thing. The second thing goes along with it. And it really has to do with fellowship with Christ. Walking with Christ. Understanding that these things are true. And he said it this way in the same passage. If we are united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And He did all this at the end of verse 6, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We haven't applied it. We haven't applied it. Oh, we claim it, but we haven't applied it. We're, We're still, let me put it this way. Are you ready for this? If the flesh has been crucified, why are we still walking around with a corpse? You say, well, I can't do a thing about it. It's there. Why, in chapter 6, verse 12 of Romans, why do we let it reign in us? Why did we put a crown on that thing? That corpse that we carry about, why, why do we give it a crown and why do we let it reign? In verse 13 of Romans 6, why do we present ourselves to it? Why do we hand ourselves over to it and say, hey, here's my arms, corpse, do what you want with them. Here's my legs, corpse, do what you want with them. Why do we go on presenting the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness? Why do we do that? Why do we let it master us? Verse 14. Sin shall not be master of you. Why do we let that corpse master us? Why? Look at verse 19, since we're still in the passage. 
Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Take a good look at that flesh. Take a good look at it. It sets itself up as such a glamorous thing. All the flesh portrays itself as the rave. It's the life of the party. It it covers itself with all the world's makeup, and and it's all its glitter, and all its excitement, and all its enjoyment, and it deceives us into believing it is alive and beautiful. Yet it is a crucified corpse. It has been mangled by a cross. It is bloated with suffocation. It is wearing the pale coloring of death. It is lifeless. It is cold. It is dead. And we go and drag it out of its coffin and play with it. You got a picture now in your head? Not pretty, is it? Why do we enjoy its company? Why do we enjoy its company? It's been crucified. It's been crucified. What's our fixation with this thing? If only we could see what we've been doing. If only we could have those spiritual vision that helps us understand this flesh has been crucified. We have life in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. We've been set free to enjoy love and joy and peace and patience and the whole list. Why? Because the flesh has been crucified. But there's more to it than that. That's just the starting place here. I've been talking to you as a believer. As I've mentioned these things. And I say that because verse number 24 also says that. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. That is a very important phrase here. Belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's crucial to understanding this. You, believer, do not belong to yourself. Do you know that? You do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. You are His property. His property. Here's how Paul said it to the Corinthians, who had a terrible problem with the flesh. He says in chapter 6, the first Corinthians, verse 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If I sold you my pickup truck, handed you the keys, gave you the title, watched you drive off with it down the road, watched you park it in your garage, you would think it very odd if I came over later and climbed up in front of that 
the front seat of that truck and started it up and drove away. You would say, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> you sold that truck to me, remember? You have been bought, folks. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought. How often we treat ourselves like we're the owners. You can't treat yourself as if you're the owner any longer. You've been bought. You do not have the title deed anymore. You've been bought. You belong to another. Think of what happened on the day you were saved. When you accepted the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Think of what happened when your sins were forgiven. You were elated, weren't you? Wow! Wonderful! You were excited that you had just received eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? Amazing! You were amazed later when you found out that His righteousness was credited to you. You say, oh, wow! You were put into the family of God! He's your father. You're his child. Brothers and sisters. Remember that day? Remember what you learned about your salvation? The Holy Spirit moved in. And he indwells you now. Folks, your life is under new management. There's new ownership in this picture. You were bought with a price. And you know the price tag. Anytime you start to belittle yourself and you say, well, I'm not so important compared to this person or that person or whatever. Let's remember this. The same blood that died for me died for you. The same blood was shed. The same Savior died. The same salvation given. The same effects are there. All of it. Whether it's the Apostle Paul or Peter or anybody in this room. Jesus Christ bought you with the same price. The same price. Don't ever consider that a small thing. You've been bought with a huge price. This life is not your own. You need to mark this verse, but it's in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. We've been here before, but look at it again. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Powerful verse, isn't it? This isn't me living anymore. It's Christ living in me. That's what Paul says. I was crucified. This life is not my own. The scripture appeals to you. Often, over and over, believer, live your life with this understanding. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Christ Jesus. You belong to Him. This is not your life. The flesh is a corpse. Don't treat it like a friend. Its passions, its desires have been crucified with it. You know, the only one giving it its strength is us. Because we prop it up and we play with it. If it's a corpse, let it lay there. It's not to have dominion over you. Don't listen to its voice. 
You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Kenneth Weiss put this in his, his wonderful commentary. He says, The Christian's identification with Christ in his death resulted in the breaking of the power of the sinful nature over the life. The victory over sin, which the Lord Jesus procured for us at the cross, is made actual and operative in our lives as we yield to the Holy Spirit and trust Him for the victory. Isn't that what the whole passage has been saying? Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. You say, but I I don't understand the victory part. Walk by the Spirit and you will. It is the Holy Spirit's ministry that applies the salvation from the power of the sinful nature which God has procured for us at the cross. Thus the Holy Spirit has a two-fold ministry in the saints, that of making actually operative in the life of the Christians the victory over sin which the Lord Jesus procured for us at the cross, and that of producing in the Christian's experience his fruit. Two things. He gives us that actual life to live out because of the victory, and he produces the fruit. He produces the fruit. That's application number one. Application number one. When it comes to walking by the Spirit, you say, what's the foundation for understanding all this? Number one, the flesh is a corpse. (laughs) Number two, you belong to Jesus. Walk by the Spirit, folks. That's what we're called to do. Walk by the Spirit. Like I said before, the final exam is the rest of your life. What is your answer to the only question raised on that exam? Do I walk by the Spirit? Yes or no? Now, you're going to submit that answer right now as we're going into prayer. Heavenly Father, we all stand before you after hearing the word that you have given to us. We stand before you as those who here truly understand that they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before you with a question now as to whether or not we will, or we won't, we do, or we don't, walk by the Spirit. The foundation to all of this, it seems so simple, and yet it's that which changes our lives entirely. For so many years, the flesh has dominated here, and we didn't even get a good look at it. It is nothing but a corpse. We've played with it long enough. Peter says, Our time has been sufficient for us to have done these things. Now we are called to walk by the will of our God. And that's where we stand before you right now, answering these questions from our own heart as to whether or not we will walk by the Spirit. Today is that day when we can make a fresh commitment. Where we have erred, where we have failed, where we have sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We come before him and plead once again that forgiveness that he gives to us so freely, so graciously, how he cleanses us from all sin, and we're so grateful for that, Lord. 
Thank you, thank you. We walk in newness of life. We start right now, perhaps. But we must start. We must walk. We must do what this passage has taught us to do. So, Lord, only you can apply it to the heart in the way it needs to be set. Only you can anchor it down deep within our souls. Only you can change us from the inside out. Only you can give us the desire, the drive to follow the Spirit. And we call upon you today to do your mighty work in our hearts. Change us, Lord. Give us spiritual eyes see, and spiritual feet to walk, as we're told to walk by the Spirit. Do your great work in us, we pray, Lord. We shall be different. We shall be different because of you. Pray this today, Lord, with your mercy and your grace appealed to. May your peace rest in our hearts. May we walk from this room in victory because of what you have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.